Welcome to the Energetics Exchange podcast, conversations with energy and climate experts. Please note that the information and commentary in this podcast is of a general nature only and does not take into account the objectives, financial situation or needs of any particular individual or business. Listeners should not rely upon the content in this podcast without first seeking advice from a professional. Welcome listeners to the next installment of the podcast series prepared by Energetics. Today's topic is on the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, the Risk Management Pillar. My name is Joel Hextel. I'm Western Australian Regional Manager. And before I introduce my guests, I'd just like to provide an acknowledgement of country. Today, we're recording this podcast across three locations. In the spirit of reconciliation, Energetics acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. As mentioned in the introduction, today's podcast is on the risk management pillar of the Task Force on Climate Related Financial Disclosure. Some brief history and facts from the uh, March 2021 overview report provided by the TCFD. Climate change is a financial risk due to the rise in natural catastrophes and chronic environmental shifts and the transition to a low carbon economy. It consists of four key pillars. They are governance, strategy, risk management, and metrics and targets. Of these four pillars, there are 11 recommended disclosures that provide investors and stakeholders with climate-related decision-useful information. In previous podcasts, we have covered governance and strategy. In the future, we'll have a podcast specific to metrics and targets. However, for today, we draw our attention to the risk management pillar. The objective of the risk management pillar is to disclose how the organisation identifies, assesses and manages climate-related risks. The three key points to be addressed to fulfil the objective are describe the organisational process for identifying and assessing climate-related risks, describe the organisational process for managing climate risks and importantly describe how the above are integrated into the overall risk management of the organisation. Unlike the strategy and metrics and targets pillars, materiality should not be a consideration for risk management as disclosure should be made regardless of the materiality. Joining me today is John Evans, formerly the Head of Enterprise Risk Advisory at the Commonwealth Bank of Australia and now Director of JE Advisory. John is an expert in risk management for the financial sector, specialising in climate risk and a regular contributor to the climate risk projects that Energetics deliver. We are also joined by Energetics's very own Head of Strategy, Sally Cook. Sally, may I start with yourself? What is risk and more specifically, what is climate-related risk? Thanks, Joel. Um, In its simplest form, risk is an uncertain future event. So in general, climate-related risks are commonly grouped in three areas. Uh, The first are physical risks, which occur due to the change in the Earth system um, and include things like increase in temperature or extreme rainfall events. Second are transition risks, so things like policy and market changes, which occur during the transition to a low-carbon economy, or reputational risks, which you could see, for example, through stakeholder, investor or customer pressure. And third, liability risks, which arise from stakeholder litigation and regulatory enforcement. But even despite all of those risks, there are many climate-related opportunities which need to be considered as well, um, like your ability to differentiate your product or service in the market, potentially move into new markets, build reputational capital and enhance business value in a low-carbon economy. From a practical point of view, how are risks traditionally identified, assessed and managed? 
It's fair to say that risk management processes are fairly well embedded in most large companies. Um, a lot of companies adopt the three lines of defence model, so they look at risk from an operational level of the business, uh, responsibility for the oversight level of the business, so for example, the executives and CEO, and then the board and independent audit function, um, which is independent reporting to the board and its committees. Under that operating framework, risks are rated for their potential impact according to their consequence and likelihood. Um, and they can be assessed as inherent, which is without considering controls, which are things that the company might do to reduce the consequence or the likelihood of the risk. Uh, or they can be rated as a residual risk, which is after controls. Organisations might also identify treatment actions for controls where they don't exist or where they're ineffective. Those risks, their ratings, controls and treatments will commonly be documented in a risk register, which is used as the basis for internal and external reporting. Are climate risks new and unique risks, or do they potentially exacerbate known risks and require additional control measures when reviewed from a climate change perspective? That's a really good question. They can be both. Some examples of new risks that organisations might not have considered are uh, emerging markets, changes in technology, disruption to their existing markets, or they can be um, risks where uh, the existing risk they've identified has changed or um, exacerbated. So, for example, um, potentially an increase in health and safety risks associated with increasing heat days. Um, but it's also interesting uh, to think about climate-related risks as being quite dynamic. So if you look at the historical observation of the last 10 years of uh, Australian climate policy in particular, you can reflect on how dynamic it's been uh, and think about how dynamic it will be in the future for us to get to net zero. So these risks are ongoing um, and we also need to consider them a current problem, not necessarily just a future problem, uh, particularly for physical risks. We're finding more and more now that some of those risks are starting to impact in the shorter term and they're not just a long-term consideration. Now, a question for yourself, John. During your career in the finance sector, I can imagine the term risk has been used a lot. Do climate-related risks affect financial institutions? And if so, how? Yeah, thanks, Joel. The various forms of climate-related risks that Sally's already mentioned, the physical and transitional risks, they'll impact on every organisation across the economy in some way. Financial institutions provide services to large sections of the economy and the population, so they're therefore subjected to aggregate impacts of climate risk on all of those counterparties. So, for example, banks lend to a broad range of businesses and industries that will be impacted by climate-related risks in different ways. Similarly, insurers provide insurance coverage to a range of businesses and individuals. So the transition to a low-carbon economy and the physical risks uh, to the assets that are either insured or financed will have a material impact on the future financial results of financial institutions. But there's another aspect that's perhaps well less appreciated by those outside the finance sector, and that is that these institutions need to borrow money or raise capital to continue to operate and grow their businesses. Their response to their climate-related risks will be a key factor in the providers of these funds deciding whether they're willing to fund them in the future. If they decide that they'd rather invest elsewhere, well, the cost of these funds will increase reducing the bank's or the insurer's profitability, or even challenging their viability going forward. So this is pretty serious stuff and a major strategic risk for financial institutions. And remember, of course, neither financial or non-financial companies are able to control the changes in the physical climate and the structural changes to the global economy as it transitions to low carbon. What they can do and what they need to do is to structure their businesses so as to make it more resilient to these changes therefore limiting the likelihood and size of any damage to them and maximising the opportunities as these changes occur.
So you mentioned a few of the challenges and barriers that financial institutions face there, but what would you suggest are the the key challenges that organisations face in identifying, assessing and managing climate-related risks? Yeah, as you say, Joel, there's there's a lot, um, but I think I'd highlight three key challenges. I think the first one is just an appreciation of the breadth of the potential climate-related impacts. It's it's quite immature um, and it's meaning that the identification is not always, not always comprehensive. So for many organisations, and I guess I'm thinking of banks in particular where my experience lies, most parts of the balance sheet are going to be impacted by climate risk in one way or another. I think the second challenge is that climate risk is a major strategic risk, i.e. it's something that could cause the strategy to fail to deliver its intended outcomes by some significant margin. Strategic risk itself is actually a relatively new category in many risk frameworks, and Strategic risk primarily comes from external sources that we're not able to control. So, for example, regulatory change, technology advancement, competitive landscape, or what our customers or society expects and wants from us. So strategic risk is in some cases not that well understood, and in many cases is immature in the way it's being implemented and embedded into business processes. So climate risk is being built on a less than robust foundation. In the worst cases, this could lead to boards signing up on strategies that have no clearly articulated approach to some major challenges to the success of the strategy, particularly those less familiar challenges such as the impact of climate change. And I think the third major challenge is that climate risk has impacts across most or all other risk classes. It's not sort of mutually exclusive, but it's actually rarely uh, explicitly and comprehensively included in the frameworks for those other risk classes. So for example, credit decisioning and portfolio management tools probably have insufficient explicit consideration of climate risk and wider ESG risks in them at the current time, although I think that is getting significantly better now. And this is partly due to the fact that climate risk is just different in nature to the risks that most risk frameworks are used to considering. And I guess the key things there are the long-term nature of it. You know, these are longer timeframes than traditional business and strategic planning horizons would use. There's also the fact that climate change is, is a certain risk. It's, it's going to happen. It is happening. Uh, and it's certainly not irreversible. So it's not cyclical like lots of other risks that people are used to considering. There's also the aspect that you know the climate risk is dependent on specific characteristics of an exposure, such as geography, location, topography, or, or build quality. And these are things that probably haven't previously been necessary to bring into some of those other decision-making processes. And of course, we face the large uncertainty in terms of both impact and timing of these risks, which is uh, difficult to deal with. And last but by no means least, there's no relevant history here. So making traditional risk modeling methods largely redundant. So in many cases, climate risk factors aren't fully included in risk measurement models yet, and all climate uh, risk relevant data are not yet being collected. So that sure sounds challenging. If you could summarise what are the most important actions for organisations when it comes to managing climate-related risk? Yeah, fundamentally, organisations need to embed the consideration of climate-related risks into all of their business decisions. Now, that kind of sounds easy, but it won't happen automatically and it won't happen by osmosis. Well, why is that? And I think it's because people don't really know how to take account of climate-related factors. As we've already mentioned, appreciation and understanding of the breadth of potential climate-related impacts is is immature, and the nature of the risk is very different uh, with little or no experience to draw on. 
I think also corporate memory is a little bit short. Um, often businesses have forgotten or are unaware of the assumptions that underpin current methodologies. So they don't always recognize that those assumptions may be compromised by climate related factors. Uh, and so, you know, an example there might be assuming that the behaviors of the past will continue into the future. And on top of all of that, uncertainty and complexity of climate related impacts can be, let's face it, a little bit overwhelming. So in order to help decision makers, the risk management frameworks need to provide the structure and tools for comprehensive consideration of all relevant climate related factors, as it's designed to do for all other risk types currently. However, even for these existing risk types, the full integration of risk consideration into business decisions is quite immature. And I think you know that was evidenced in the finance industry by the findings of the Royal Commission, for example. I think two particular high priority actions for financial institutions really need to be, number one, portfolio management decisions need to reflect the future climate-related risks and opportunities, meaning taking less exposure to some traditional industries and sectors and more exposure to those sectors aligned to the transition to a low carbon economy. And I think the other thing is around product pricing. And we hear a lot about that climate risk isn't being priced in by markets. Product pricing needs to reflect the climate related risks over the terms of the products or loans that we're offering. So banks need to move away from lending and pricing on the basis of the risk that existed historically and take a much more forward looking view to the risks that will be relevant to future potential losses. And they may also need to contemplate more risk-based pricing where they actually charge customers uh, with high climate risk more than they do for loans which have low climate-related risks. Thank you, John. We'll come back to you shortly for some of your recommendations. However, Sally, as head of strategy at Energetics, I can imagine our clients come to you for advice uh, regarding how to manage climate-related risks a lot. So how are climate risks affecting our clients' strategy? to not only mitigate risk, but potentially grow from the transition to a lower carbon economy. It's really interesting, Joel. One observation is a lot of the clients that we're working with go through the risk assessment and the, and the remaining elements of the TCFD and find that a net zero economy is very beneficial to them in so many ways. Um, that can be from the more obvious things around new business opportunities and some of the things that John mentioned in terms of being able to capture some of that green capital that's starting to flow into the market from the banks, but also from less obvious things around being able to attract and retain talented staff within their businesses. And we also find that there's opportunity that exists both in existing core business practice, but also in the decisions around growth and mergers and acquisitions that companies are making. And where we see essentially a new frontier here is how do we embed a better understanding of climate-related risk and opportunity into those decisions and doing appropriate due diligence on those as well. That's picking up on a lot of the good comments that John made as well, not just on the cost of capital and the, and the flip side of that, the availability of capital but also um, understanding your implicit assumptions and bringing in a greater consideration of climate-related risk in areas where you might not have previously. It's comforting to know that it's not all doom and gloom, that um, where there are risks, there are also opportunities. Thank you for highlighting that. So back to you, John. What are the biggest barriers to progress on managing climate-related risks and the opportunities that may be presented? I think that one is a very, very interesting question. And, and one of my consultancy business ran a recent survey on to try and tease out the key drivers. The survey suggested 14 barriers to meaningful progress, ranging from you know, non-belief in global warming, 
technical issues such as lack of relevant data and through to a lack of awareness and understanding of climate drivers. The results showed two factors coming out on top. So the first one was misalignment of long-term climate impacts and short-term management tenure and incentives. The second one was scepticism over the usability of climate scenario analysis results for decision-making. I'd actually love to get some further input on this. So anyone who'd like to participate, the survey is still open. I think we've put the details of that in the podcast description. So please feel free to go there and, and give me your thoughts. I think the misalignment point highlights the fundamental issue of timeframes. So climate-related risks extend longer than traditional business planning and risk assessment horizons. The scepticism point really connects into the general issue of uncertainty. And now this is what I believe is perhaps the major issue for many organizations when it comes to acting on climate change. And this is because uncertainty is something that people aren't used to. You can't measure it. Um, you can really only investigate it via scenario analyses. And as we know, scenarios are full of assumptions that will need to change over time with circumstances. And they can also, uh, those assumptions can very easily be challenged and, and you know, holes poked in them. We also see a really wide breadth of potential impacts when we look at these different scenarios, um, which will depend on the scenarios that are examined. And of course, that sort of broad set of bookends makes decision making harder because you really don't know where in that spectrum you're going to land. So I think building confidence to act on the basis of uncertain outcomes is something that we'll need to rapidly improve if organisations aren't going to stand still while the world changes around them. To help them do this, I think help we need to help leaders understand that you can make decisions today that are going to help steer you on a assumed pathway and manage short-term risks, but you need to know when a further decision is going to be required. So at what point are those assumptions that you were working on going to become invalid or less likely to play out in the way that you previously thought. I think you also need to recognise that decisions we make today do impact future outcomes, especially if we're entering into long-term contracts. Um, and an example I'd like to give there is, is around home loan lending, where you know historically banks have made home loans for 30 years um, on the uh, assumption that behaviourally people will refinance those every four or five years. Well, that may not be the case if there is no market for that refinance. And if we don't recognise this, then we're going to get severely burnt when those loans are still on our books in 20 years' time and, and suffering physical risks uh, from climate change. And lastly, I think we need to take appropriate and measured actions when new information on climate-related risk exposures are assessed. So although lots of scenarios may have been explored so far, action in response has been relatively slow. And I think that's primarily due to concerns around a number of, of aspects. Currently, profitable business may have to be foregone and, associate, and associated relationships with customers might become damaged. You know, we've got an impact on staff and the conversations that they're going to need to be able to have with customers. And also, we don't know what the final state will look like. So, you know, people are reluctant clearly to make act, take action today that may turn out to be suboptimal in, in the long term and maybe unnecessary in retrospect. Thank you, John. Now, you have been a wealth of knowledge, experience and recommendations. To summarise or highlight the three main points or recommendations that our listeners may consider when dealing with the risk management pillar of the TCFD, what would you suggest? Yeah, I think fundamentally, it's all about understanding the risks and factoring these into your decision making to ensure the long term sustainable future for your organisation. And I think the three things that I would 
do, first of all, was first of all, I would make climate risk a material risk type in its own right in the risk management framework. I think this will help ensure transparency, governance, focus and resourcing needed to develop and embed climate related risk tools into all relevant elements of the business and its processes. And yeah, this may feel a little bit counterintuitive when we're thinking about integrating climate risk into the existing risk management framework, which is what the TCFD actually asks us to do. But like many issues that need integrating, but also need a strategic focus, this separation is probably needed, at least in the short term, to direct, drive and oversee the integration and embedding of climate risk into those wider frameworks. And I think we've seen this as an example of this in recent years has been financial crime, which is uh, you know an example of a compliance risk, but has been elevated to a, a risk type in its own right. I think the second thing is actually find out what the biggest barriers to progress are for your organisation and focus on addressing these as a priority. I think that might mean developing education and training programs for employees to expand um, understanding, awareness and capability in the climate risk space. And I think the third thing is it's really important we start taking incremental action steps. We can't afford say, any analysis paralysis here. Um, it's easy to be overwhelmed, but I think inaction is the worst thing you can do. So start collecting that missing data that allows improved understanding of the climate related risk exposures really focus on the risks to the organisation from climate change rather than the risks to the climate from the organisation, which I think is where a lot of disclosures have been focused so far. It's these risks to the organisation, its business model are going to damage you. And then, as I've mentioned before, I think pricing for the increased climate-related risks and incentivising customers to take climate um, risk mitigation actions that are going to protect both us and them. Thank you, John. Like John, Sally, you've been providing some excellent examples and insightful commentary today. What are your three recommendations for our listeners to consider? It's hard to limit them to three and I agree with John's very good points. Um, Building on the communication aspects that John highlighted, I think capacity building following your risk assessment process, I think it's where these risks are often novel and often originate from an environment function and then need to be managed by a different function. There's a complexity in communicating and capacity building of people throughout the organisation to understand how to interpret and manage climate-related risk, which I think is not necessarily being widely addressed. I think considering your treatments carefully, so your new actions that you might take to address some of these risks, how do those policies, processes need to change in practice? How does your existing practice need to change to take into account climate-related risk? And then consider, in particular, I think, again, drawing on some of the points that John made earlier around being open to other people's assessments. So you are exposed and vulnerable to the assessments that others will make on your business, which then feeds into the way that both you, how you disclose to the market, but also in the way that you can frame your risks to get the most traction internally. So I think understanding your internal audience what will drive them in the context of their stakeholder and external pressures will help you frame the risks and get more traction to address some of the barriers that John mentioned. Thank you, Sally. That concludes the podcast. I hope our listeners have found it extremely insightful and informative. My, I guess, key takeaways from this podcast and both from the research done prior, the work we've done at Energetics, and from the responses from our guests, it highlights that 
Although risks have always existed for organisations, investors and stakeholders recognise the potential for climate-related risks, whether they be physical, transition or liability risk, present new risks or increase the severity or likelihood of existing risks over the coming decades. The Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, or TCFD, recommends disclosures in annual or sustainability reports that provide transparency to the magnitude that these risks have on the organisation. I'll leave you with a quote from John F. Kennedy, which I uncovered during my research for this podcast, of which I feel is applicable to the need for organisations to start managing climate-related risks today. There are risks and costs to action, but they are far less than the long-range risk of comfortable inaction. That concludes our podcast on the risk management pillar of the TCFD. I'd like to thank John Evans, Director of JE Advisory, and Sally Cook, Energetics Head of Strategy, for an insightful exchange of their thoughts and experiences in this area. John mentioned a survey in his response earlier. That's linked to that survey will be made available on the Energetics website. Please do subscribe to the Energetics podcast and keep an eye and an ear out for the next and final instalment of our TCFD pillars, metrics, and targets.